Heavenly Father, we are grateful that the weather has turned warm again and that we are still here and able to study. We thank you, Father, for um, the service of, of many in the room who provide their time and, and their uh, effort to ensuring that we're here and we're able to study every week. That includes, Father, those in the church and uh, those who attend at Wayside and, and make possible, Father, the facility. These are things that have been uh, put in place by your hand over many years, but you also had our needs in view, and we thank you, Father, that you made the, these provisions possible. And thank you, Father, for the, the opportunity to pray. Sometimes, Father, I know in my own life, prayer seems to be in the, in the way of what I want and, and uh, even a distraction. But, Father, it is such, a, it's such an important part of our relationship with you that we are uh, put in a position to bring to mind things of need and concerns and to do so knowing that you promised that we will uh, be heard. And I ask, Father, tonight that you would hear as well the things we've raised to you and that you would speak to our hearts on how you are acting and working to, to address our needs and uh, give us comfort to know that your will is being done. And now, Father, we ask you as we study the word you teach us as you do so well each week by the Spirit, um, though resting on the minimal, limited skills of man, Father, you nonetheless uh, shine your glory through your Spirit so that our simple words can become words of life. And we pray, Father, that you would do that again tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Tonight we'll start up in chapter 14, verse 19. And then move into 15 tonight. As we begin, and before I get into the teaching, uh, I've got a small handout, a map. As always, the handouts are available online for download later if you, if you choose to. In this case, it's a map. It will show the uh, journey of Paul in his first missionary journey. And that's what we've been studying in chapter 14. We have covered one journey of Paul's four. Looking back on the journey we've talked about so far in chapter 14, and we're going to wrap it up tonight, of course, as we end the chapter. The journey's lasted close to two years, as best we can tell from the scripture. This was almost two years on the road for Paul. It was after he returned to Antioch of Syria that Paul wrote his very first letter. His first epistle is the epistle of the Galatians, the letter to Galatians. He wrote it more than likely... Uh, right after he finished attending the Council of Jerusalem, which will be the topic we start looking at tonight. And that makes some sense when you think about having just gone out on his first missionary journey, having just established all these new churches in Galatia. It would make sense that after he's come back from that trip and reflects on what he's done and thinks back to all the people he's met and the new believers he's established and so on, that he would be moved to write to them in his absence and do so to encourage and correct and guide. That became the pattern Paul then followed throughout the rest of his ministry, traveling while still writing to those he was not seeing, trying to basically be in two places at once. And of course, in the writings that we have in the scriptures today, we see the inspired letters of Paul, though we know he wrote others, so clearly there were other writings that God had not chosen to inspire such that they become scripture. And the letter to Galatians, by the way, is written to the churches of Galatia. That's where we get the name Galatians from. Galatia refers to the area of your map, this area in Pamphylia where Paul centered many of these early churches. You see on the map, in fact, Galatia is, is kind of listed there above the journey. So as the trip nears its conclusion, they're going to circle back through a lot of the cities where he's already been. That's the dotted line. 
on your map. And as he comes back through, Luke doesn't indicate there's any opposition on the return trip, probably because Paul doesn't spend a lot of time in any one place on the way back. Uh, As we left last week, Paul had just recovered from his stoning in Lystra. So on, on the map, we're at the point of Lystra. And now he leaves the next day on a trip to the last town before he starts his trip home. And the last town is Derby. So look at verse 19 of chapter 14, and that's where we pick up as we finish this first missionary journey. The scripture reads, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I mentioned last week as I read these the first time that we wanted to come back into them again tonight because there was a couple of points worth pausing on, which we didn't have time to do. So we're back in these verses, but just briefly. In Derby, we're told they make converts and they establish yet another Gentile church. And then following that experience in Derby, they begin to retrace their steps back through the various churches in Asia Minor where they had already been, where they had already established these beachheads. Paul clearly having to come back to where he lived in Antioch of Syria figures it's better to go back the way he came rather than through some new route so that he has a second chance to encourage all these early churches. From Derby, they head back to Lystra, then Iconium, then Antioch. Now, notice the Antioch here is not the same Antioch as the one they set out from in the original church. That's often confused. We're talking here about, and you'll notice on your map, you'll see an Antioch in Galatia, different than the Antioch of Syria. All right, just like today, we have probably 20 different cities called Salem. All right, there's uh, different cities called Antioch in that day. So he's headed back now. At this point in chapter 14, they have not yet made it all the way back to Antioch of Syria. They've simply made it all the way back now to Antioch of Galatia. As they revisit revisit each church, they're going to bring a message of comfort. Luke sums up that message in verse 22. You know, we know they communicated many words with each stop, but Luke sums up the sense of what Paul was delivering as he stopped on the way back. And that sense in verse 22 is, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What an interesting thing to focus on as your message of encouragement and edification. Many tribulations will be the common uniting experience of the faith. We'll share different languages. We'll share different cultures. We'll share different times and ages of history. But among the things we'll share is a uniting experience in tribulation. And to differing degrees, but always from the same source, from the enemy. And you have to imagine that after Paul and Barnabas left every church, the people that were left behind in these churches would have fallen under some level of persecution similar to what Paul and Barnabas themselves experienced when they initially came into the town. After all, if if their arrival produced a negative reaction out of the Jews and persecution, in, in fact, at one point it resulted in stoning, then it stands to reason that if the church behind that they left behind continued to exhibit and talk about and experience their own faith, they would have incurred a similar kind of persecution. So Paul's coming back to each of these churches, to all these new believers, and he is communicating to them, first and foremost, your experience in tribulation is not the exception to the rule. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. It's the common expected experience of the faith. 
either from the Jew in some cases, maybe in other cases from Gentiles. Nonetheless, they would be under attack. But I think the believers themselves were probably unprepared for this. I'm guessing, but I'm assuming that when Paul was first there and preaching the gospel for the very first time, he probably failed to mention that a consequence of their willingness to receive the gospel was going to be a life that was subject to tribulation and persecution. I I don't think that's part of his original message. Maybe it was, but I'm suspecting it wasn't. And if I'm right, then as he leaves and they experience some persecution, or maybe even before he leaves, when they're watching him undergo persecution, it must have drawn in their minds a question about, did we get into the wrong thing? Is, Is the fact that persecution is coming proof that I made a bad decision? Because after all, Bad things happen to bad people, right? And, and these kinds of punishments must be God's way of saying he's unhappy with us. Those kinds of trivial assumptions start to creep into people's thinking. And they would be asking themselves, uh, was God unhappy with us? Or is this faith that we've been given or this, this gospel message that we've been given not the truth? Paul's answer to all of this is it is the truth. It should be expected it is the natural common experience. And no doubt Paul would have pointed to his own experience as proof. I'm persecuted everywhere I go. And of course, up the chain from Paul, Jesus was persecuted for his willingness to come and deliver the faith. Just as Christ himself said that when they persecute you, remember, they persecuted the prophets before you. It's always been the pattern. So that's his that's Paul's principal concern is that those believers who have come into the faith under his watch would understand that what they're experiencing now in this new walk is the expected experience, but it has a glorifying purpose. God has a good purpose in it. Then verse 23, as we finish the chapter, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila, or Attalia, sorry, Attalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So on the return trip now, we've closed the loop. They're back to where they started, back in the Antioch of Syria. But notice how he deals with these churches as he leaves. There's something very interesting here. We've talked at length at times along the way in this, in this book that the book itself is not a prescription for how to run a church. It's sometimes used that way, and I think erroneously. It's not a prescription for how a church should look. It's a description of how the church did look in a certain day. But having said that, there are at times in the story, in the narrative, examples of behavior that are timeless, that are not unique to a culture or a period of history. Here's one of them. On the return trip, Paul leaves each church with leadership. They're not headless. They're not a group of people without some under shepherding taking place for their benefit. They appointed elders and Paul appointed them. They were not elected. You'll never see anywhere in Scripture the congregational form of church government. Uh, You'll never see it. Active in Scripture, you'll never see it proposed or advocated from the epistles. The biblical model is always a process of appointment by men who receive their leadership from a similar appointment at an earlier time. The church has always moved forward at the hands of men and women 
who answer the Spirit's call and the Spirit's anointing. And then they are confirmed and sent by elders to establish their new work in ministry at some location. Once that work takes hold, they are then the ones who establish new leaders under their watch and so on. That's the basic biblical model with some variation and certainly with exceptions made for certain circumstances in which you can't always have that line up just perfectly understood. But the Bible never supports the view that there is a pope or an utmost church leader for all the earth. And yet there is a chain of anointing, a chain of commissioning expected in Scripture. Uh, Paul uses the term father in the faith. At times in his letters, he speaks to those who he has personally brought to the faith under the Spirit's direction, of course. He refers to himself as their father in the faith. And he will appeal to them on that basis as your father in the faith. And he's referring, of course, to the fact that God chose Paul as the mechanism, the means by which he delivered the gospel to somebody and they received it. It doesn't make Paul uh, their boss, per se. It doesn't turn Paul into something different than he is in terms of human, a, a man. But it suggests a chain of authority, an eldership, a role of superiority in the church that should be respected to some degree. We all have fathers in the faith, not necessarily the one who led us to faith. That's Paul's experience with certain people. But in the sense of discipleship, in the sense of somebody who has the preferred uh, uh, mature position of faith relative to our own, who has an opportunity by relationship to counsel and edify and get to know us, and who has taken the interest in doing so, or for whom we've taken an interest in receiving from them. And that person, by the very fact that they are available and useful to you in the maturing of your own faith, they become a father in the faith to you, uh, in a sense. It's not something they can claim so much as it's something we can grant. But that relationship is important. God provides them. They're not happenstance. They're not coincidental. They're provided. By God's hand. And when they're provided, it's for a purpose, for the growth of the church and for the individual's growth particularly. But with it comes, I think, a reciprocal relationship for the person who's being fathered to turn to that person with an understanding that they have something to offer and, and respectfully considering their opinions and their views and seeking them, out, seeking them out and their counsel and their correction. And all of that is to God's glory when it's done properly. At some point, many of those fathers will get the opportunity to take a more formal role in a church body pastor, elder, teacher, etc., and they should be respected for that as well. But that, that begins with somebody of an existing role, with an existing role in leadership, recognizing the Spirit's call and anointing, vetting the character of the individual against the standards of Scripture, confirming the person's own interest in the calling and in pursuing that work of ministry, and when all of that's in place, at the right time and in the right moment, confirming it in a formal way then that person takes on a mantle of leadership that they have to carry forevermore. There's no such thing as a retired elder. These are roles that are appointed in recognition of who they are, not what they're doing. I can't change the fact that once I am appointed to some role, that's who I am. I have to live up to it is the concern. So Paul is now saying within these church bodies, you need leadership. God has raised men up. There's evidence that somebody's being called and equipped and they're anointed by the Spirit. We're affirming that and confirming it publicly to the group. They now take on a mantle of leadership that the rest of that church has to respect. And notice it's elders. The concept of a single pastor-led model is not biblical either. So a new church may rely on a single leader for a time, out of necessity, especially when that church is first starting up, as was the case in Ephesus, for example, with Timothy. But then as that church grows, the expectation becomes that a leader appoints elders as they become available within the congregation, as he sees them being raised up by the Spirit. 
and made bail and, and their own maturity reaching a certain point and so on. The intent should be to get to that point whenever the time comes. Uh, and if it doesn't reach that point, you end up in a dangerous situation in which one man rules and that is never healthy. That's why Paul, when he wrote to Titus, said in, in chapter one, verse five, listen, he says, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Titus was with Paul, and we'll see this in chapter 15. Titus is with Paul here in Antioch of Syria with Barnabas. And they travel as a threesome, among others, down to Jerusalem for the Council of Jerusalem, which we're about to study. So Titus is with these men right at the beginning. But at some point, Paul says, you stay here. We're going on. And in the letter he wrote, he says, I left you in Crete so that you would set in order the church, meaning create some order and structure to the believers that have been established in that town. And along with that, appoint elders, not rule over it yourself. So there is an expectation that, that men would rise to the occasion, as God permits, and take on the, the mantle of leadership. Now, having said all of that, when a church follows a different model of leadership, it does not preclude God from using that church to his own glory or for the church to be helpful and edifying to those who gather in it. It doesn't invalidate the church. Just as a pastor who may do bad things in his own personal ministry, sin, in other words, that doesn't invalidate that man in ministry. It's just a reality of men being sinful. Nor does it excuse it. So the fact that we might have a church that follows a less than ideal model doesn't invalidate the church, but it does, I would argue, call for us to seek ways to improve it if God opens that door, to, to, edu to educate within the church body that we shouldn't be following this method. It's not the biblical method for decision-making or leadership structure. So church leadership here being established as elders, plural, appointed from someone of a position of authority, not elected by the congregation. The shepherd leads the sheep. The sheep don't elect the shepherd. The people being led are not the people to decide who and how to lead them. Because if you think about that for even just a moment, what happens over time when the sheep get to decide who leads them is the sheep are leading. It's not a healthy thing in the long run to have the sheep deciding who leads them because that will influence how they're led. We've all seen probably a hundred flavors of how this can get done and not done right. Just understand the biblical model is not confusing or, or multicolored. It's very simple. Men only, plurality of men appointed by other leaders who have the best interests of that church in heart. Once appointed, they have the authority so let's just finish that passage I, I read and then we can move into 15. Paul and Barnabas commend, it says in verse 23, they commend these new believers to the Lord. I want you to notice something there about how they themselves understand their relationship to these churches. When you think about how hard it was in this day and time to communicate or travel over the distances that separated these churches and Paul from these churches. When you think about the distances they're traveling, Consider the threats and the challenges that these new churches would have faced in the Gentile communities and in the world they lived and not, and not have the benefits we have today. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a constant presence in the culture, a Christian culture where they knew what Christianity was like. They didn't have a history with their parents and their grandparents and all of that. Totally fresh, out of the blue, new kind of faith. No basis in Scripture on which to really understand the doctrines or the beliefs. A little bit of training with Paul. A second visit as he comes back through the second time and then that's it. So now you're Paul and you're Barnabas and you're worried as I establish this church and I move on, what's going to become of it after a year? How, you know, from a man-centered point of view, you'd be extremely worried about the prospect of this church lasting and staying pure to the word and pure to the mission or pure to the doctrine. 
of the church because you feel like it's a, a boat without an anchor, just floating in a storm. How is it going to stay where it needs to be? When you look at what he says in verse 23, what Luke says, they commend these new believers into the Lord. Those words mean that they are accepting the reality that this is in God's hands. These, these believers are in the hands of the Lord. This is his church. I've started it. I've taught it. I've got to leave it. And I'm not going to worry that these believers are going to be sunk as a ship, in my analogy. They're going to be just fine. This church is going to be in the Lord's hands. And I think Paul and Barnabas could rest in that. And I think that's a good lesson because I think we often are involved in the work of ministry. And I can see myself in this role quite easily. We get emotionally and personally connected to the success of what we're trying to do. And we feel like if we don't do it, it won't be successful. Or if we don't stay on top of it, it's going to fall apart, forgetting that it's not about us. (laughs) It didn't require us to begin with. So if we're involved, it's just a grace of God to give us opportunity, not a, a, a necessity on God's part that we have to be there to make it work. So Paul clearly understood that. He says, I commend you all to the Lord, meaning I, I put you in his hands where you belong. So then Paul wraps up his victory lap through Perga, heads over to Eliah, from very sails back to Antioch of Syria, where the first church is still there and growing. And they now turn and commend Paul and Barnabas on what they've accomplished and, and for all the work with the door opening to the Gentiles. Now, from that experience, that's his first missionary journey. That's his first foray into the world as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now we transition into chapter 15. And here you're going to see a fairly well-known, famous scene throughout this chapter here, the, the uh, Council of Jerusalem, it's called. This is the first challenge to the orthodoxy of the early church. So this is the first time that the church is now being threatened, not from an outside force trying to undo the very church itself, you know, the Jews persecuting the believers and so on. This is somebody from within the church, arguably Christians, who are working to change the, the basic doctrines of the church into a position that is not biblical and certainly not what Paul preached. How do you deal with that kind of a challenge? So this is another one of those instructional moments. How do you deal with challenges to orthodoxy in the church? Acts 15 now, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way to the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So the scene here begins in Antioch, in the home church of Paul and Barnabas. They're still there ministering. The earlier verse at the end of chapter 14 says they spent a long time there. So there's some period of time that's passed since they took that first journey. And while they're there, some men, it says, came down from Judea. Now, remember the, the way the directional statements work with the Jew. Up is to, toward Jerusalem, down is away from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what the topography is, okay? So they've left Jerusalem, they came to Antioch, so that's down. And they come in challenging what, what's been taught. Now, take yourself back to, I think, it's Acts, I think it's Acts 11, where we hear about Peter being challenged in Jerusalem by the party of the circumcision. Remember that? This is a political party defined by this mindset. These men are from that party, and you'll see that more clearly when we look later in the chapter. So these are more of the same. A group of people who have come to this view, strongly held view on the need to be circumcised, literally to be Jewish before you can be Christian. And they continue to promote this idea within the body of Christ. And they now have heard of the success of Paul and Barnabas in Galatia and in Antioch. And so their new 
uh, mission field, so to speak, is to go to these places and start preaching yet again this same thinking, that you have to be Jewish before you can be Christian or you cannot be saved. And so they come to Antioch of their own initiative. That's an important distinction because you have to understand they're not sent from someone else. They're acting on their own initiative, not under the color of, of leadership, not by the hand of some other authority in the church. We're talking about self-initiated behavior. And the fact that they travel all the way, think about this, they travel all the way from Judea to Syria on their own initiative so that they can confront Paul's growing ministry to the Gentiles. That tells you something about how much this issue has become the issue for them. And this gives us opportunity to explore something that is unfortunately common today, maybe always has been, but it seems very pronounced in the church today. And in my personal experience, I run into this kind of obsessive single-mindedness within the body of Christ. And what I'm referring to here is an individual or maybe a small group who share a common view who define their Christian life and purpose by a single theme or a single idea. Sometimes the theme is hyper-national patriotism or it's mimicking or trying to adopt Jewish culture and practices or it's natural remedies and healthy living and healthy eating. Whatever the fad of the week is, it's not that those things may be wrong altogether in and of themselves, though in some cases they are, but it's more that the narrow focus is so dominant in their, in their thinking about who they are as a Christian that everything they do say and think is filtered through that lens. There isn't a conversation you can have in the, in the life of the body that doesn't somehow find its way back to that point in their thinking. And if your thinking differs with them on that point, it is a roadblock to any progress in a relationship with them, with any shared fellowship, because until you adopt their point of view, they can't see any reason to have fellowship with you. It becomes a litmus test, and it becomes the defining characteristic of who they are as a Christian. Now, maybe I've been describing something you haven't had much chance to see, and if so, that's a, a good thing, and I hope you don't ever see it. But I could point it out, even just in our surrounding community, small congregations, small movements, little uh, house churches in which... The unifying thing in that group is some singular issue that is not central to the gospel and often a complete distraction to what's meaningful. And unfortunately, often it's earthly. It's temporal, worldly concerns that find their way into a Christian conversation rather than something eternal. I could understand, I guess to some degree, a body that is united over a very strongly held doctrinal belief that has its focus in the Bible or has its attentiveness to the eternal. And that's often what a denomination is about. But what you typically see is something that's very earthly. Not to say they're not Christian. It's to say that their Christianity is so warped, it's an impediment to their growth rather than an enabler. The focus problem leads to an imbalance or uneven Christian maturing or even a failure to mature because what I find in these folks is they have selective attention. If you're engaging them on their topic, they'll talk at length for all day. If you move off their topic their attention wanes very quickly, and their understanding is usually fairly, fairly shallow. They're very unbalanced or very uneven in their knowledge of Scripture or in their life as a Christian. And in extreme cases, it warps your theology and even leads to a false gospel. And that's what's happening here. In the most extreme cases, the thing becomes so important, it's more important than the gospel. It's more important to them that you identify yourself by their thing than it is that you would receive Christ. They'll feel a greater challenge and a greater reward for themselves in getting you to agree with their thing than if you just simply said, I believe in Christ as my Savior. And I've seen that 
in the worst cases. I think it gives you an insight into the mind of who these people are. They're not just rabble-rousers. There's something very zealous about what they're doing. And that zealousness is seated in a distorted understanding of what should matter as a Christian. For them, what mattered was being Jewish. More so than it mattered that they had received their Messiah. And in their case, more specifically, it was a desire to cherish a long-standing Jewish mandate. And that led them to bring an expectation that Gentiles must adopt that same cherished mandate, the mandate of circumcision. And more importantly, the threat that this posed to a Jew was undeniable. The Jewish embrace of the gospel was few and far between. The Gentile embrace of the gospel was now the dominant movement in this early church. And if you are a Jew who's come to believe in the Messiah and has a disproportionate or warped understanding of what matters in the course of of a Christian experience, for example, in this case, their view is that it must be centered in a Jewish beginning. You know, after all, we're Jewish. We got it first. Everyone else has to come to where we are. As you see the church grow and, and morph into a Gentile institution, the fear that you're going to be swallowed up by a Gentile culture that's not of your own, and these cherished Jewish traditions are going to be lost as the church moves through history as a Gentile organization is a tremendous fear. And so your threat leads to a, to a response, and the response is, let's make them all Jewish. What we're doing is we're converting them to our side of this problem. Now, does it require that these people be unbelievers? Does the fact that they're preaching this mean that their own faith is invalidated? And I would argue no, because understand, they themselves could very easily have received the Messiah in truth by faith. But now, for selfish, fleshly reasons, turned the message in a new way for their own sake and preached a different gospel without that meaning that they themselves didn't receive the true gospel. You see how those two can be separate. Just as a true believer can stand up in the pulpit and preach heresy if they so choose. I mean, if they, if they go that direction. But the flip side is just as true. Sometimes when someone preaches heresy, it is giving evidence that they don't know the real gospel. And we just aren't going to be able to discern that. I'm not suggesting we try, uh, except to know that if somebody's not preaching the truth, you don't need to listen to them. Regardless of where their own heart is, you know all you need to know. It's time to move on to someone who can teach you something worthwhile. These men were teaching that circumcision was a requirement, which means Judaism was a requirement. And later you're going to find out they were teaching that they had to keep the law as well. So it's not merely that they were being circumcised. It comes with the whole package. You need to be a Jew, keep the law, do what a Jew does, and then you can be saved by receiving the Messiah. Listen to what Paul writes when he writes the letter of Galatians. Remember, he wrote this letter coming back from the, 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 the Council of Jerusalem, which we're going to study tonight and next week. That letter was written back to these same people in Galatia who no doubt would have heard this message from these same zealots as they moved through the region trying to undo what Paul had done, or enhance it, if you will. But just listen to the first seven verses of the letter. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You can see there he's trying to balance his own authority with those of these other people who came on their own authority, right? Then he says, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And listen, that's the salutation, right? First thing he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
He wrote this letter because as he left and they came into the gap, he knew that they were starting to hear the Pharisee and he had to deal with it. So there's a great dissension with them. The word dissent there in the Greek is literally strife. These men and their appearance and their teaching create strife in a church that we had earlier heard was a model for unity. Men from all walks of life, different cultures, all coming together in this new entity called the church. And these men have torn that up, have ripped that up with their, with their false, teaching, false teaching. By the way, that is another good measure of false teaching. Teaching according to the word won't always be accepted. But generally speaking, in a church that knows the word, it will not be received in dissension. Apart from the isolated person who is not counseled by the word, just like Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they hear me. In a, in a church that is accustomed to the word of God or has been taught to some degree in the word of God, when the word of God is taught properly in that setting, it will not result, generally speaking, in dissension. When you see false teaching come in, it will create dissension because some will believe it and some won't. It's not a unifying experience. I find it interesting here that the church does not immediately accept Paul's viewpoint in the course of all this dissension. Wouldn't you expect that the church, would, when they hear Paul's great defense of the truth of the gospel, wouldn't have just said to themselves, well, he knows what he's talking about. Forget these guys and kick them out. Wouldn't that have been the end of it, given what we know Paul is capable of doing and given his letters? But instead, the church leaders decide the issue needs to be resolved by a meeting in Jerusalem with the apostles gathered together. Now, why is that the case? Why is that going on here? Is this a, uh, an indictment? of that church leadership is to be definitive. It creates a definitive answer to something that has gone beyond the local church. Something definitive. What would be the comparable answer for us today? What is the comparable solution for a situation in which we find ourselves struggling with an issue that's brought dissension to a body of believers and maybe is, is shared among other believers, other, other congregations? We wouldn't have a conference. Why not? Why did they need a conference in their day and we don't now? Because they don't have this, because they don't have the word. This solves that problem for us, because this is now the counsel of those same apostles preserved in eternity through the word of God. There should be no issue of doctrine not already addressed in this work. God ensured that it was the whole counsel of God, as Paul says. It's not to say every permutation of life's circumstances are covered, but we don't need to have councils of Jerusalem about that kind of stuff. What we need is councils of Jerusalem over what is the gospel? What is faith? What is saving grace? This is where we would go to settle those arguments. The other thing I'll point out, and this is not something we've mentioned before, but remember Peter had the keys to the kingdom, and you remember how that worked. It meant that until Peter personally made available the gospel to a certain group of people, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, those groups were not able to receive the gospel. Peter had to be there on the first day, so to speak, at the opening moment with his key which was Jesus' way of establishing that those movements were authenticated and genuine by his power. But there was a corollary of, uh, given to him in the moment that Jesus delivered those words. He says to Peter, you will have the keys to the kingdom. And what else does he tell him? What you bind on, heaven, on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's also spoken to Peter. Peter had the power in his ministry personally, as appointed by Christ, to permit or forbid certain practices or beliefs within the church as orthodoxy for the purpose of setting church doctrine and practice in its in initial days. So as Peter is that in that role, Peter must be personally involved in making this decision such that Peter can say what is right or wrong on this point, and it would then become doctrinal orthodoxy for the church. Now understand the statement Jesus gave Peter does not imply P 
Peter was creating truth and God was obliging to respond to Peter, it is to say that Peter had, by the Spirit, the insight to know the truth of what was bound or loosed in heaven, and he was echoing that on earth. It's spoken in the Greek and translated in the English in such a way that it sounds like heaven is dependent on earth, but in reality it's reflecting heaven is, is uh, the channel of communication from God is to Peter for the sake of us knowing what is true in heaven. Think how important that was, though, in the early church. Who do you go to when you don't have the written word to know the truth, especially if the dissension could even carry over into the apostles themselves? Peter had to be the top guy. Somebody had to be the top guy. In that sense, and only in that sense, could you call Peter a pope in the way it's commonly used by the Catholics, in the sense that there was a supreme authority on earth appointed by Christ. But that was a limited role. It was for Peter alone. And once Peter was gone, that need passed, and therefore so did the role. But at times, men err, even apostles, and they had to have some way for those issues to be resolved. Peter becomes that resolving, uh, tie-breaking kind of role, or leadership role. The church now decides to send Paul, Barnabas, and other men down to Jerusalem to deal with the rest of the apostles, and, and notably with Peter, so that they can make a decision, and then it becomes church practice and orthodoxy. Those other representatives we know from the letter of Galatians include Titus. We could also assume they probably sent representatives of the group who were arguing the point of becoming Jewish. Let them work it out down there and then come back with an answer. That's potentially what this means. It's noteworthy here that the leaders in this church do not include Paul and Barnabas. The leaders in this church are not Paul and Barnabas. The leaders sent Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are not the leaders. There are the leaders of the church. Remember, just as they've done in the other churches in Galatia, they appointed elders. Paul and Barnabas have not assumed the role of elder in this church because they are apostles. Remember, an apostle is one sent with a message. They are the, the missionaries of their day. Missionaries don't stay behind and become part of the government of a single body. They are, they are by their mission called to leave that body. So Paul and Barnabas are affiliated with this church. They congregate when they're in this, in this city, but they probably go to multiple different house churches. They probably don't settle on just one. They are not the elders. I want you to think about the fact that that shows how much they submitted to the authority of other men. Because you know what was going on, right? You know Paul was standing in these discussions in Antioch saying, it's by grace alone, through faith. It has nothing to do with works. It's nothing to do with circumcision. Trust me. You know, he's saying those words. The elders are going, I hear you, Paul, but these guys have got a good argument too. How about you all go down and handle this in Jerusalem? Paul says, I will do as you say. The apostle Paul submitting to the authority of the church he help start with Barnabas, and Barnabas likewise, submitting to the authority of elders. I find that to be instrumental or, or, or convicting to remember, no matter how you start in the faith, once a leadership role has been established over you, you don't have some special claim to exemption from leadership because of your past or because of how that church began or your relationship to that church. If Paul and Barnabas had determined that they were not going to submit to authority, that's not a healthy response for the sake of that church in the long run. What's it teaching? When we have a strongly held view, we can object to authority. If the authority of the church conflicts with my personal strongly held view, that's excuse for me to step out from underneath the authority of a church because I don't like what they're doing. Paul knew they were wrong. Paul submitted to their authority. Notice as we move on, though, real briefly, they take a journey that takes them through Phoenicia. This is just geographically where they had to pass to get from where they were to Jerusalem. Phoenicia on the coast, then into the Galilee, probably into Samaria, finally into Jerusalem. I love the fact that since they're on the road, we might as well take advantage of the opportunity. Let's do a little encouraging and teaching and, and helping with the churches they pass through. And as they would have moved, they would have moved from a Phoenician church that was Gentile to a Samaritan church that was Samaritan to 
uh, Galilee, and then from there down into Jerusalem into a principally Jewish church. They would have hit all three types of people in the early church. And this is what you can expect. They each would have reacted, I think, slightly differently to the news that Paul and Barnabas are finding great fruit in ministry among Gentiles. That's, in a sense, the backdrop for this conversation in Jerusalem. They must have been both excited and a little concerned about what was taking place because it didn't, they didn't know what it meant. Now you're going to see the motives of this group, the party of the circumcision, on display in the first meeting of the apostles in Jerusalem. Look at Acts 15, verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So these are believing Jewish Christians who in their Jewish life had been Pharisees. And as a Pharisee, as a result, they retain that. They're still Pharisees. They're just believing Pharisees. Now, we have our own versions of those today, but here you have believing Pharisees in this day. Paul and Barnabas arrive with their entourage. They give an initial report. The report would have been something like, we have great news to bear about Christ's work in the, among the Gentiles. We've planted churches here, 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 and here. This is all the wonderful work we've been doing, um, and so on. And as they give this report, a sect of Pharisees, the party of the circumcision, object, and they demand both circumcision and following the law. And this makes so much sense when you consider that they're Pharisees. The Pharisees were Pharisees because they subjected themselves scrupulously to the law. That's their defining characteristic. That is their thing. They're Christians, but more than that, they're Pharisees. Versus, I happen to have been a Pharisee, but now I'm a Christian. Now, remember what Paul said? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but I counted all rubbish for the sake of Christ. That's the right perspective. Their perspective is, oh yeah, I'm Christian, but I'm a Pharisee first. Always will be. Born and raised a Pharisee. Can't get away from that. You know, it's who they are more than being in Christ, which is who our, our, our identity should be now that we're believers. And so I need people to be like me. Nothing validates us more than copycats, people who fall into our own walk of life. So if I'm a Pharisee who's a Christian, I expect all of you to be just like me. Then I know I'm right. It's a form of validation, I think, at the kind of psychological level. It's also an example of that narrow, single-minded focus of Christian life. And in this case, it had gone to that point of being unchristian, unbiblical in its core. It was a false gospel. In chapter 2 of the letter to Galatia that Paul wrote right after this experience, he describes how this meeting went. It's very interesting. He describes the process of getting ready for the meeting and going into this meeting. And I'm not going to read the passage, but I'm going to summarize what Paul says. Paul says he arrived with Barnabas and Titus. They immediately met only with Peter, James, and John. They did it in secret so they could know where these men stood on the issue before they got into the big crowd and had the public meeting. So they said, look, before we get into that room and have a big discussion, I need to know, are we all on the same page here, right? Salvation by grace through faith alone, right? And they confirmed that with, P with Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Then that group went into this meeting already knowing how they were going to decide the issue, and they held the meeting to satisfy the interests of those who wanted it, but there was no doubt in their mind about what the answer was going to be at the end of the meeting. So it was preset so that there wouldn't be argument even among those men. Very smart done. If you go back and look in the second chapter of Galatians, Paul in the first person says, when we arrived, we related how the Gentiles were receiving the gospel. How there does not mean simply that they were receiving it. How means what I told them, what they believed. What was the message I delivered that resulted in their salvation? I delivered a grace only message. 
Are we on the same page? That's what Paul refers to. All right, so the private meeting results in the apostles agreeing. Then they plan in secret for how they're going to conduct the meeting with the Gentiles and the Pharisees and so on. Then they go into the meeting. And when, they take, when the meeting takes place, they already know how they're going to decide. So look at how that plays out now in Acts 15. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon their neck, upon the neck of the disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Luke says the meeting was held here at verse six to look into the matter. And in verse 7, he indicates there's much debate. But understand, what he's saying is the room was a contentiously, a room filled with contentious debate. That is among the Gentiles and the elders and the Pharisees. It is not among the apostles. Paul says clearly in Galatians that that was not the case. The apostles, therefore, are observing, they're listening, they're playing that elder statesman role in the midst of this discourse. Finally, when it's sort of run its course, notice how the, the apostles get involved. The first thing that happens is Peter stands up. He has the power to bind and loose. Peter stands up. Who's the leader in the church in Jerusalem? Not Peter. And as this letter, as this scene plays out next week, the one who then comes behind Peter and makes the official declaration of a decision is James. Here again, Peter's submitting to the authority of the one who's over the church in Jerusalem. It's not Peter, it's James. But at this point, he stands up. And let's look, in the last minute here, let's just look at how Peter addresses the issue. And... By the way, I think it's interesting how they let this room play out the, the debate. I think it's good that they let voices uh, be heard. I think it's good uh, for a couple of reasons. First, they get to find out who knows the truth and who doesn't. Among their flock and among their elders and among the leaders, they get to find out who knows what's really going on and who doesn't. Secondly, of course, it gives everybody a chance to feel that they were a part of a process and then cements them, hopefully, in agreement over the final conclusion. Peter then speaks. By the way, this is the last time we see Peter speak in the book of Acts. Peter begins by reminding the, the crowd that it was God himself who made a choice, and at this point, over ten years earlier, to include the Gentiles in the church. And the way he did that, the circumstances of their salvation, makes it clear to everyone that it was God who was involved in making this happen. It was by God's decree. And the choice was made clearer by the fact that they got the same spirit in a very demonstrative way. And Peter goes on from that point to say that the arrival of the Spirit resulted in a similar cleansing for them as it did when he arrived for us, the Jew. So both Jew and Gentile have the same salvation experience. Then he ends with probably the most powerful statement in the Bible against legalism, at least one of the most powerful. He says, first of all, why do you test God? The word test here means to doubt the Gentiles' entrance into the church on the basis of faith alone. He says... If you doubt that the Gentiles have entrance into the gospel on the same basis that we do, on the basis of faith alone, then you would be calling into question God's judgment in the matter. When you suggest that they need to do more than simply have faith, you're calling into question God's own judgment when he appointed the Spirit to them on the basis of faith alone. You're suggesting God made the wrong decision. And you're testing his judgment in that sense. 
since God Himself made clear His intent to include Gentiles on the same terms that He did Jews already, then when the Pharisees turn around and say to the Gentiles, no, you need to do more, God's telling you, you need to do more, they're testing God by the virtue of their misrepresenting Him. They're lying about what God Himself has done. And then secondly, He, com- he compares the demands of the Pharisees to, to a yoke hung on the necks of these disciples. Notice Peter uses the word disciple to refer to the people who are receiving these instructions, meaning the Gentiles. Peter himself says these Gentiles are disciples. So he doesn't doubt their faith. And then he says, you've put a yoke on them, a yoke or a burden, a burden, religious burden, that not even the Jew himself is capable of bearing. It's revealing because it indicates that the Pharisees in the church must have still believed they were at work keeping the law. You see the self-deception there? There are still people walking around right now that want to keep the law and think it's necessary. I mean, that's a never-ending struggle within the church, unfortunately. When we ask someone to perform a work as part of a process of salvation that we ourselves are not even adequate to perform in our own power, we are hypocrites and we preach a different gospel. The irony here, as you say, is these people had not even understood the truth of the grace of the gospel enough to recognize that in themselves they weren't doing enough work to satisfy God. Because you can only argue for someone else to do a work necessary for salvation if you think you yourself are already accomplishing that work. No one can live with the hypocrisy of of thinking themselves unable to do it while still preaching that someone else would, they must have assumed they were doing it. But that's self-deception. They weren't even keeping the law. No one does. It shows you just how deeply rooted that self-deception was. Imagine how much damage would have been done to the early church if the Pharisees' view had prevailed. Imagine what that would have done. How many Gentiles would have found the gospel to be good news if it came with the requirement that they be circumcised and keep the law? And similarly, when we present, or if our presentation of the gospel includes any hint of legalism, and ours rarely goes to the issue of circumcision, I understand, but we have our own versions of that in the church, unfortunately. If we propose new rules for living, new standards of behavior, new cultural expectations, then we repeat the sin of the Pharisee, even if some of those rules are good rules. If we connect them to the conversation of salvation, we preach a different gospel. We're adding works, whether intended or not, And ultimately, we're acting hypocritically since we ourselves invariably violate those same rules sooner or later. If you're a Christian, you know you can't swear. No, that's not true. A Christian can very much swear. Not necessarily properly and rightly, not necessarily are they supposed to, but they can. It could happen. See the difference? The Pharisees were saying, without circumcision, you cannot be saved. If I suggest that if you swear, you cannot be saved, that's the implication of saying Christians don't swear. No, Christians do swear, unfortunately. They do a lot of other terrible things. But I'm not worried about what you do right now. Let's talk about belief in the gospel. And I'll let God take care of your behavior. You see my point? To a Christian, I'll have a conversation about behavior. To an unbeliever, we don't need to talk about behavior whatsoever. Let's talk about what you believe. I've always said the worst thing you can possibly do to an unbeliever is convince them that some kind of cleaned up lifestyle is central to the gospel because that's something they can do. And after they run after that goal and accomplish it, they're no more Christian than they were before, but now they're, they're thinking they've done what's required. They're no longer interested in what you have to offer. They think they've already met all the terms. In other words, they're even hardened to some extent to the truth of the gospel because you've already given them a recipe which they've kept. Why do I need to know anymore? And the flesh loves recipes. The flesh is offended by the gospel. Heavenly Father, please help us, Father, preach the gospel in its true form. Let us be bold and uh, willing to confront the errors of others as, we give a, uh, as we're given opportunity, but always in love and with a heart to, uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.
Father, help protect us from legalism in our own walk and in our uh, words. Help us to see those errors as they creep into our, our presentation of the gospel. And, uh, Father, let us uh, take to heart the need to, to live righteously, having come to faith, so that we may model the truth of what we know. Bring us back next week according to your will, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.